0: Join Dr. Anthony Fauci and your colleagues in respiratory medicine at the ATS 2021 International Conference starting May 14th. Register today at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society.
1: We help the world breathe. Welcome everyone to the latest episode of Scholarly, the podcast brought to you by the ATS Scholar Journal and the ATS Section on Medical Education. I'm your podcaster, Deepak Pradhan, a pulmonary critical care attending at New York University and Associate Program Director there. And today I'll be interviewing Dr. Elam Avakami on his recent ATS Scholar article entitled, Anti-Racism in Academic Medicine, Fixing the Leaky Pipeline of Black Physicians. Dr. Avakami is a pediatrics resident at Children's National Hospital in Washington, DC. He was a graduate of Harvard Medical School, completed a master's in public policy, and this summer starts a fellowship in pediatric critical care medicine at Columbia University. His passion is the intersection of clinical medicine, health equity, and social policy. Elam, welcome.
0: Thanks, Dr. Pradhan. This is a really special opportunity and a really important conversation. So I'm excited to get in, to get into it.
1: Fantastic, Ellen. Please call me Deepak. Um, so you know, I found your article really just fantastic. Uh, I'm really always drawn to articles that are one, obviously well written, but that really cut through fluff and really provide practical recommendations and actionable insights into topics. And so I'm really looking forward to a very informative and thoughtful podcast today on this topic of employing anti-racism into academic medicine. So let's dive right in. First question for you. You know, we, we all can understand the importance of Physician competence in relation to patient care, but I guess what's the need or the benefit of diversity in the healthcare workforce? You know, make the case for us,
0: Uh, Deepak. That's a that's a great question actually, and it's a I think that's probably the best place to start. Um, So I go back to uh, the Institute of Medicine uh, in two thousand four, published a report called "In the Nation's Compelling Interest," uh, and it's an argument for diversity in the healthcare workforce? Uh, and uh, when, I, when I think about this question, I think there are three main pillars that, um, that are important to me and that are, I think, important to us as a healthcare system, uh, thinking about, again, the, the benefits of a diverse workforce. The first is the impact on underserved communities and on health disparities, right? And um, that IOM report uh, shows us that racial and ethnic minority healthcare professionals are more likely to serve uh, minority communities, medically underserved communities, those communities that suffer from worse access, from worse health outcomes. Um, you know, There's other work that shows that physician diversity is, is associated with greater access to care for low-income patients or racial and ethnic minority patients, those who don't speak English as their first language, et cetera. Um, and so the key here for me is that uh, physician diversity is a key strategy for reducing persistent health disparities, right? It's not the only strategy, but um, it is one of the keys. Uh, and um, you know, the second pillar is we think about the impact on uh, the, the populations that are uh, most underserved but there's also benefits for us, right? As medical providers and particularly as trainees and learners, lifelong learners that we are. Uh, that same IOM report holds that uh, diversity and health professions training improves the cross-cultural training and the cultural competence of all trainees, right? And, and that makes sense, right? It's look, it's hard to know what you don't know. And each of us come to, to medical training and to our work with our life experiences and the perspective that. Uh, that we gain from those experiences, but it's hard to incorporate the perspectives of a life that you have not lived, right? And that's what I mean when I say it's hard to know what you don't know. So, um, as a person wanting to become the best provider I can for the patients that I see, it is to my advantage to train with and to be able to learn from those who have life experiences and perspectives different from mine, right? And so I think that's what that's what we mean when we say that it has benefits not just for the patient population that we take care of, but also for us as people uh, learners in a learning environment. Um, And when we talk about black physicians specifically, well, you know, the reality of racial health disparities is that black people are disproportionately likely to be our patients, right? And so what we have is a situation where there are so many physicians of every stripe and every specialty training in environments where there are hardly any black colleagues Uh, to learn from, whose life experiences and perspectives to learn from, uh, who can inform approaches to care and management. Uh, And on the same side, or I guess on the flip side, uh, so many of the patients are black, right? So what I see is a key gap in the the robustness of the training environment uh, that many of our trainees are experiencing. Um, and the third key pillar for me is, is, you know, it's not just about the impact on underserved communities. It's not just about uh, the impact on the learning environment for learners, but uh, it's also about, you know, savings for the system writ large, right? People, people always say you've, you've got to make the business case. And so um, I think there is a business case to be made. Uh, one of the more interesting papers that we cited in, in our work uh, comes from the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, and Through a randomized design, uh, the authors found that Black men were much more likely to choose preventative services, especially invasive preventative services, after meeting with a racially concordant physician. The authors go on to posit that increasing the number of Black physicians could reduce the Black white male gap in cardiovascular mortality, which is what uh, they were studying, by as much as 19%. Well, that's huge when we think about the fact that, you know, Something like two thirds of the difference in life expectancy between black men and white men is attributable to chronic diseases, which we know are amenable to primary or secondary prevention, right? So, you know, I'm going to borrow from my healthcare policy experience to to uh, to cite a buzzword or a jargon that we often use in that space, which is bending the cost curve, right? Thinking about ways to sort of decrease the rate at which healthcare costs are rising as a percentage of GDP. And to this issue of bending the cost curve, considering this idea that uh, increasing the diversity of the physician pipeline, increasing the represent- representation of black physicians among the physician population can impact the degree to which black patients uh, uh, take up uh, rec- medical recommendations, including for preventive services and invasive services. I asked the question, you know, what do we think costs Medicaid more money? Colonoscopy or a colectomy? Right? And if more people, if increasing the diversity of the physician population makes it such that uh, more black men are taking up colonoscopies or other preventative services, how is that not a mechanism for bending the cost curve? Uh, to me, it's a mechanism that's gone ignored uh, too long. So yeah, so there, you know, there are benefits for the patients, uh, obviously benefits for us as learners, but also benefits for the system, that system at large in terms of saving uh, uh, money Uh, and bending the cause curve, as it were.
1: That's fantastic. You make a very, very strong, compelling case for just all the different groups that are affected by such uh you know such diversification of the healthcare workforce. You kind of talked about the patient patient care aspect of it, the trainees and the learning environment, also institutionally as well. And even in your article you cite the you know differences or changes that can occur because of this based off onto research, quality improvement projects, and so forth. So it's a very compelling case I find. I guess then the, the next point is well what's the gap what's the problem what what do the statistics tell us about black physicians in academic medicine?
0: Yeah, I wanna I wanna go back real quick to the point mm-hmm. you made about research uh, and quality improvement. Uh, I, thanks for highlighting that. I think again the uh, there's another there's another piece that I failed to highlight earlier, which I'm glad you brought up, which is increasing the representation of black physicians among the physician population doesn't just mean bringing new perspectives to questions that are currently being asked. It means being able to take advantage of new questions that we haven't even thought to ask and re- uh, questions that can inform the entire uh, medical research enterprise in new ways that helps us as a, again, as a healthcare apparatus move forward. I'll move to your question about like identifying or quantifying the gap, right? So um, the the Association of, medical, of American Medical Colleges uses this uses this term underrepresented in medicine to describe groups that are Underrepresented in the physician population relative to their representation in the general United States population, right? And so, um, though African Americans comprise about 13% of the United States population, just uh, 3.6% of academic medical faculty self report as Black or African American, right? So that's a pretty stark underrepresentation in medicine. Um, and part of that is explained by a shortage of black medical students, right? We know that black undergraduates matriculate to medical school at like strikingly low rates. Um, The AAMC uh, a few years ago, put out a report called uh, Altering the Course uh, on black males in medicine. And um, they find that there were 543 black male matriculants to MD granting institutions in 1978. And in 2014, which is Uh, Almost 40 years later, there were 515 such matriculants. So fewer Black men matriculating to medical school in 2014 than in 1978, despite an overall increase in the number of Black male college graduates. Um, So so there's that issue, right, of of just underrepresentation in sort of the, quote unquote, feeder system, if you would. But our our article is... uh, talks about the leaky pipeline, right? And so when we talk about this pipeline from first day of medical school to an academic faculty position, junior faculty, senior faculty, et cetera, uh, there is the problem of the pipeline being underfed, which is there's just not enough flow through the mouth, if you will, of the pipeline. But it's also also true that the pipeline is leaky along its length, meaning we know that uh, there are differential rates of attrition Uh, between uh, Black faculty and non-minority faculty at every step of the academic promotion hierarchy. What does that mean? It means that minority physicians experience lower rates of promotion and leave academic medicine uh, disproportionately more than non-minority physicians. Uh, So the percentage of junior faculty that are Black or African-American is greater than the percentage of, let's say, associate professors is greater than the percentage of, is assistant professors is greater than the percentage of full professors is greater than the percentage of department chairs, et cetera. So, starting already from a stark underrepresentation, we are still losing uh, representation uh, by way of this differential attrition, what we call the quote unquote leaky pipeline.
1: So you really highlight this, this idea that it's not just a problem with, at the point of matriculation into medical school, into our residencies and our, and our subspecialties, that it is all throughout a process of, of this leaky effect that uh, there's a loss ongoing all throughout. Right. Um, and I guess the, the question that that begs is that the why, you know why is this happening? What are the concrete contextual factors that are contributing to this leaky pipeline effect?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of good work on this topic. And I actually had the privilege of, uh, on this paper, uh, working with uh, someone who's an expert on this on this issue. Dr. Gabrina Dixon is uh, my senior author here uh, and a mentor of mine. And she, um, in 2019, uh, and a group of, of collaborators published some work in the Journal of Pediatrics looking at uh, underrepresented minorities and their reasons for leaving academic pediatrics. Uh, and they talk about a variety of things. They talk about issues regarding mentorship or the lack thereof. Uh, they talk about you know the lack of underrepresented minorities in leadership positions at the institutions that they work at, um, and then they also talk about you know things like uh, instances of just flat out racial bias, gender bias, experiences of implicit bias that are uh, you know sort of like death by a thousand cuts, exhausting over time, and 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 that make people say, look, um, this environment is just not the one for me. And so that's, you know, that work was done on the, in the setting of academic pediatrics, but I'm sure that those findings generalize across sort of the academic medicine spectrum. And, um, and so those are the kinds of things that we think about when we think about uh, why underrepresented minority faculty leave academic medicine more um, disproportionately than, than their peers.
1: Striking, you know, in your paper, you talk about, you know, these, uh issues that are surrounding, uh, you know, in terms of uh, structural racism, and it's used in literature quite uh, a lot in terms of this terminology, structural racism, systemic, institutional racism. And so I'm just trying to understand a little bit better of like how you define that, what, you know, for our, our listeners, you know, what does that actually entail, this terminology?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And, I, and, I, and this, is, um, this is one of the, the really key points of this paper and, and of our conversation. Um, I go back to the Institute of Medicine again, and, uh, and I, I, I referenced the Institute of Medicine uh, in this conversation and in the paper, um, because first of all, the literature that I'm referencing that they've put out is from uh, decades ago, right? The, the, um, the first report that I cited uh, regarding workforce diversity is from 2004. Uh, I want to now talk about a, a report called Unequal Treatment about uh describing um, ways to confront racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. That was put out in 2002, right? So, you know, anyone who's an academic physician knows that probably knows of that paper that talked about how uh, evidence-based recommendations take uh, 17 years on average to be put into practice. So maybe that's part of what's going on here. But, but, but the point is that I wanna, I wanna use this work from the Institute of Medicine to say that this, these are not new sort of uh, hip ideas. These are old and established ideas that maybe people just are not familiar with. And secondly, uh, I don't think the Institute of Medicine is anyone's idea of a radical leftist organization, if you will, right? So uh, this is not like a sort of bleeding heart liberal thing. These are, these are serious scientists that have reviewed serious literature and, and come up with, um, with these ideas and, and recommendations. Uh, and so going now to the um, unequal treatment, which is the report on uh, racial and ethnic disparities in care, so, produce this report, IOM reviewed more than 100 studies looking at quality of care for racial and ethnic minorities. And the studies that they reviewed indicate that look, minorities were less likely to receive needed services, including clinically necessary services, procedures, et cetera. And furthermore, the literature they reviewed suggests that racial differences in patients' attitudes, like their preference for treatment, for example, don't vary greatly enough to fully explain racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare, right? So there are other factors at play here. Um, And I think this is what we refer to when we talk about uh, structural racism. Um, And so I think, you know, I'm not a sociologist, my dad is, but uh, you know, by way of conceptual definition, uh, when people use structural racism, they're referring to the ways in which the social systems that organize our society, you know, housing, healthcare, education, criminal justice, et cetera. Um, they're referring to how these systems by their interrelationship uh, produce persistently worse outcomes for certain populations and specifically for racial minorities, right? And to me, like the distinctions, the distinctions between structural racism and institutional racism, et cetera, are not as important as what uh, these concepts share in common, which is a major conceptual frame shift that takes the emphasis off of individuals and off of intentions, right? And shifts the analysis to systems rather than individuals and outcomes rather than intentions. And that's the major work that we hope to do with our paper. We suggest that that sort of conceptual frame is the right way to approach the problem of faculty diversity in academic medicine, right? Because that is also an outcome that is governed by an interrelated group of systems, including undergraduate medical education, clinical training programs, um, academic medical centers, faculty retention and promotion systems, uh, research grant funding, whether NIH or other funders, et cetera. All of these interrelated systems uh, work together to at this point in time, produce persistently worse outcomes as far as uh, the uh, promotion and retention of Black physicians in academic medicine. And so the the idea of uh, analyzing the system and its outcomes is one of the key concepts that we want to advance in this conversation.
1: Awesome. I just think that oftentimes we utilize these terminology and uh, I think that people don't really understand what that means, particularly when it's in the setting of medicine you right. know we, we hear it more in in terms of of things uh segregation issues red linings to uh, you know um governmentally you know uh issues and kind of more societal in nature and then to hear about it more of what structural racism is in the context of medicine i think is is very um you know eye-opening
0: yeah and, and i think i think you know again I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this specifically in the context of uh, of um the diversity of the academic medicine population. And so in that context, what I would say is uh, a system is structurally racist if it uh, persistently produces uh, worse outcomes for black academic physicians in terms of their retention and promotion relative to um, the population. Now, the point is, I think um, I wanna get across that, I said earlier that this is not an analysis of intentions Right, and not an analysis of individuals. And I think that this is like a sort of a really difficult thing for people to get their mind around, They say like, well, how can you say that I work in a structurally racist system, right? Because everyone that I know wants to do well. And I say, look, I trust and believe that everyone you know wants to do well. I Everyone I know wants to do well too, right? But the point is, we are no longer like um, worried about what individuals intend All we're analyzing here, totally agnostic to individuals and their intentions, all we're analyzing here is what does the data say about the outcomes of this population? And if the outcomes of this particular population are persistently worse, then that is a situation to which we will apply the term structurally racist.
1: Right. You know, I think uh, also just a small microcosm analogy is the concepts of M&Ms, you know, where you, know, you are very focused. You don't want to be focused on just the, the, that specific situation, that specific individual and what went wrong. But it goes back to the larger issues of what led to that, what systems were in place that allowed that problem or issue to, to arise in the first place. And how can we stop that and prevent that rather than putting it on the, the uh, onus of the individual? So I want to continue on to, to the idea that you know, kind of going back into kind of the issue of intentions and 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 thought processes. Uh, one of the things I've heard from healthcare workers, particularly in the backdrop of the Black Lives Matter movement, is that you know some healthcare workers will argue that we need to look past race, that that all lives matter, that as healers we should be colorblind to the care of our patient. What's wrong with that mentality? Why is that that terminology, that mentality, that philosophy flawed?
0: Well. It's flawed, uh, because it's quite literally impossible. Right. And I'm sort of laughing here a little bit. But, um, but, but I, I, I I want to address this particular conversation with with the seriousness that it deserves, because I think that this is really key to helping us move forward as a healthcare system and as a society. Right. And so uh, I go back to uh, the report that I cited earlier called unequal treatment from the Institute of Medicine uh, and in that report again their conceptual model for explaining the persistence of racial health disparities um it it, you know they attribute those disparities to systems right to the structure and the way healthcare is organized etc but they also say that some of the other key determinants are racial biases and stereotyping on the part of providers themselves right so you know, research suggests that uh, diagnostic and treatment decisions, as well as providers' feelings about their patients, are influenced by their patients' race or ethnicity. Um, and there's so much data out there supporting this point. Right? We data is showing us that uh, providers were less likely less likely to recommend cardiac catheterization procedures for black female patients, despite that all the patients in this study were actually actors trained to be exhibiting the exact same kinds of symptoms. Um, you know, we there's literature out there that shows that uh, providers have been shown to harbor uh, dangerous and medically inaccurate ideas about black bodies in terms of their perception of pain, even the thickness of their skin, uh, and that these kinds of racialized perceptions of pain lead to differences in uh, analgesia, for example. Uh, For things like long bone fractures, black patients shown to receive less analgesia for the same fracture than white patients. Um, and so there's so much data out there that, that makes this point. Uh, and the point is that while the relationship between race and ethnicity and treatment decisions is complex, it is partly influenced by uh, the perceptions and attitudes of healthcare providers, right? Us, doctors. Now, there's a lot of resistance to this idea uh, because it feels very ugly to consider that you might have racist stereotypes embedded somewhere in your cognition. Right? I think there's a, there's a very sort of strong averse reaction to the idea of calling yourself racist, right? But here's what I say, all human beings, let me say it this way, all physicians are human beings, first and foremost, right? We're not like some species distinct from the rest of the human population. And as human beings, we have human brains, which means that we like all humans are subject to the limitations of human cognition. I mean, that's just like, that's how our brains work. You're not a good person or a bad person. You're just a person with a brain and human brains work a certain way, right? So the second part of this is all physicians are human beings and live in the United States, at least since we're talking about the United States population, we're all living in the United States and we're all exposed to the same kinds of negative stereotypes about black people that permeate the American milieu, right? Meaning, you know, from entertainment media to news media, even to just attitudes that you learned growing up around family or friends or in your, you know, in your town. Um, And I think people are often, you know, so, hesitant to admit that they like might have some negative stereotypes about black people in their minds. Um, But I know you do because I do too, because everyone does. That's like, again, we are subject to the limitations of human cognition. We are subject to being influenced by the stereotypes and ideas that we have been exposed to literally since before we could talk, right? Um, And so this is not an individual, a value judgment about an individual. It is, uh, we are sort of absolving ourselves of blame to say that, like, this is this idea of uh, stereotypes and bias influencing our clinical decision making is just a bug, right? A, 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 a issue with our fundamental cognitive processes. Um, Now, I'll make a caveat here to say that, yes, obviously there are physicians who are also actively racist, right? But but what I'm saying is even if you don't consider yourself to be one of those people, recognize that like what we're saying is that you have a brain that is human. Uh, And you know the world of social psychology teaches us that conditions of time pressure and resource constraint and individual fatigue, et cetera, are the conditions in which human brains are um, more likely to lean on you know, gestalts or heuristics or snap judgments or et cetera. I'm only a resident, so I can't pretend to speak for the entire physician population. But based on my three years as a physician, I am pretty sure that we work under conditions of time pressure, of resource constraint, of individual fatigue, et cetera, which means by virtue of our work, we are subject to the prime conditions for heuristic thinking, for stereotype thinking, et cetera. And I think that we all understand this concept intuitively. Um, which is why we spend so much time talking about the concept of diagnostic anchoring, right? I mean, this is why we go through the exercise of building differential diagnoses. It's not that we're calling each other bad physicians who don't think broadly about patients. We all say, look, we recognize that our brains are wired to see a clinical you know, illness script or, or walk into a patient room and map what we see onto the last thing we saw or to something we've seen before. And we know that to get around that, we force ourselves into the process of differential diagnosis so that we can sort of overcome this unfortunate limitation of our cognition. And what I'm saying is, let's just consider bias and stereotyping a form of diagnostic inquiry, right? That it's a concept that we're already familiar with and it's the same sort of process. And and my question is how often do we build Differential diagnoses, if you will, in our perceptions of Black patients uh, or their families' uh, motivations or intentions. There's a there's a lot of attention right now on this issue of police brutality. I mean, we're, we're we are recording this episode in the week that Derek Chauvin was convicted for the murder of George Floyd, um, and there's been so much attention on this issue of police brutality and of um, of police misperceiving or inappropriately perceiving. Black men as disproportionately threatening and requiring a degree of force response that is not applied to white men in similar scenarios, right? But we've also seen, you know, in the last year, uh, so many other stories that map onto that frame of misperception or exaggerated perception of black threat, right? Uh, we know about the gentleman Christian Cooper in, uh, in New York City. Uh, Dr. Pradhan, you're in New York, so you probably heard about the guy who was bird watching uh, with a set of binoculars around his neck and, and uh, perceived by a white women as like a mortal threat, right? Um, and we all ask ourselves, like, man, how do people, how can people see a guy with a set of binoculars around his neck and perceive him as mortally threatening? Well, we are as physicians, again, as human beings, subject to similar processes. As we sit on our, sit on our high horse and look down on police and look down on uh, the lady in, in, uh, in New York City, the bird watching lady, how often do we ask ourselves whether those same processes are at play in the, uh, in the patients that we perceive as quote unquote pain seeking in the emergency department, right? Or in the families that we describe as quote unquote difficult. Um, the, the point is that this is, part of the human experience right this this uh, stereotype thinking is part of the human experience and the sooner that we acknowledge it the sooner we can get to work on designing redesigning our systems to account for it. Now, I'll, I'll share a personal story um, you know as as was mentioned I'm a pediatric resident uh, and uh, last year I was taking care of a young lady a young girl with sickle cell um, and Again, I know this data that perceptions, uh, black, perceptions of Black people's pain uh, or inappropriate perceptions of their pain lead to inappropriate analgesia. I've, I've read that data. I've cited that study before. Um, in our hematology division, what they've done is uh, started sort of uh, documenting pain plans in each patient's chart meaning the outpatient hematologist will document something that says, look, when this patient comes to the ED, I don't have time for you to be trying to guess whether she's in pain or not. This is what you put her on because we're trying to get around this problem. And this patient that I was pre-rounding on didn't have a pain plan documented or I couldn't find it. Uh, And so I went in to see her in the morning on my pre-rounding the way we do. And um, I asked her how much pain she was in. And uh, she said nine or 10 out of 10, Uh, but she didn't look to me like a person that was nine or 10 out of 10. And so she said, uh, you know, normally get a PCA, but I was like, oh, well, you know, maybe you don't Maybe you don't have to get a PCA today because she looks like she's doing okay. So that was my plan. I presented the plan, et cetera. We went forward with it. And um, it so happened that, you know, this uh, this girl ended up calling her mom, like like crying and um, really upset at the idea that uh, I didn't take her pain seriously. And I went to talk to her about it afterwards. And you know, she told me, look, I've, I've had sickle cell for 16 years. I've been in pain my whole life. Um, I learned how not to wear my pain, quote unquote, like you're not always gonna see it on my face, but, but like, why do I have to be screaming and crying uh, for you to believe that I'm in pain, right? And for me, that was such a gut punch uh, because I am a black doctor, right? And uh, again, like I said, I know this literature and I'm the person that gets invited to ATS to talk about you know, uh, racial equity in, in healthcare. And I am the one that undertreated this girl's pain. Uh, my point in sharing this story is that I hope it gives people permission to get past their reluctance to engage this subject. And uh, I hope it gives people permission to move towards acknowledging this subject to say that like we are humans bound by the limitations of human cognition. And, and I think that this is a segue into this, this, this idea of anti-racism, which is the other, Key idea that we advance um, in our paper, the the leaky pipeline being the first, but anti-racism being the second. And 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 what we're saying is we've got to get past this idea of being quote unquote non-racist, right? Where non-racism, if you will, says, look, I condemn racism, but I'm not actively engaged in uh, shifting the status quo. The issue is, racism is the status quo, right? So it's you know it's like it's the it's like we are standing on the deck of the Titanic and uh, the ship is heading straight for the iceberg. And we look at each other and say, well, I don't want the Titanic to sink. I don't believe that Titanic should sink. It would be really bad if it sank. Uh, And then we all uh, go back below deck. Right. And no one goes actually to the wheel of the ship to grab it and turn it so that it doesn't hit the iceberg. Um, The Titanic is hitting the iceberg every day. Right. So what we advocate for is not just a non-racist approach but an anti-racist approach which says but we're not going to stick our head in the sand we recognize that the status quo is untenable we prioritize racial equity as a core value not just as icing on the cake or like a nice to have but as one of the key ingredients baked into our cake and we are going to take active steps to reverse the trends that we see so when we talk about you know color blindness or looking past race or not seeing race I'm all for it. I would love to do that. Um, what I'll say is we should do that when race is no longer an independent predictor of access to care or of quality of care or the health outcomes, et cetera. Until then, ignoring race in healthcare is willful ignorance, right? Um, racial health disparities are, are literally a matter of life and death. And so my challenge to our audience and to physicians everywhere is Uh, we've got to decide what's more important, which is, is our personal feelings or our personal discomfort with acknowledging uh, these issues in not just in our systems, but in our personal practice more important or our patients' lives more important. Uh, So I think it's high time for us to get our feelings out of the way so that we can start making a difference for our patients' lives.
1: Um, that was very powerful. Uh, one, thanks for sharing, you know, your your story. And then also kind of moving the conversation back to that, you know, it's really highlighting the problem, right, putting it front and center, as opposed to, you know, if, if this is the problem, we need to put it, f- you know, f- at the forefront, rather than, you know, just, uh, um, you know, it's really that active recognition of it. And I, I think that's very powerful. And so I guess, you know, you've made a great and compelling case for kind of another heuristic of, of, of you know, problem gap hook of, of, you know, what's the problem, what are the deficiencies and then, and what are the benefits? And I guess now we should move into kind of what's the solution? You know, how do we fix these problems? How do we introduce anti-racism into, I guess, both the formal and, and informal or hidden curriculums both?
0: So for my humanities folks out there, um, there is a guy by the name of David Foster Wallace, who's one of the famous American authors, and he writes this essay called uh, Consider the Lobster, which is sort of a classic essay. Um, and I'm not going to talk about the piece, but I will borrow the title. Uh, so I want to introduce an, an idea called Consider the Clabsy, Right. And so what I'm what I'm getting at here is that the first thing we need to do is to embrace this conceptual frame shift that me and my authors are pushing forward. From non-racism to anti-racism and so when I say consider the CLABSI what I mean is imagine a world in which a hospital system or a state or uh, a nation was experiencing a dramatic increase in the rate of central line associated bloodstream infections right Dr. Pradhan you're an intensivist so you know this is you know that's a big deal right um, think about what would happen if your hospital system saw a, a dramatic spike in the CLABSI rate. I mean, that would be like an all-hands-on-deck, red alert situation. We would be reassigning work streams so that people could have time freed up to work on this issue. We would be conducting deep dives and focus groups among uh, you know, patients and families and providers to figure out where the issues are coming from. We would be throwing QI money at this issue. We would have a CLABSI counter, like I'm sure your ICU has, to say... X number of days since our last central line infection. I mean, it would be a massive undertaking to correct right. this problem. All no hands one, on deck. Right. No <laughs> one would be saying, well, I really don't believe that there should be CLABSIs. Okay, next subject, right? Uh, and so when I say consider the, consider the CLABSI, what I'm saying is why not approach this issue of physician diversity with a similar urgency? And you might say, well, is are life and death. Uh, but I hope that uh, this conversation in the paper that we wrote has articulated the point that, well, physician diversity is life and death too, right? And, and this is why, again, we're, we're advocating moving from this idea of non-racism, non-racism that says like, ah, the status quo is, is unfortunate, but there's not much we can do to this idea that says that there is more we can do. The challenge is that there is a uh, implied accountability with that shift. Meaning once we decide that there is more we can do, then we are accountable as to whether we do it or not. All right, so the first, you know, the first I think key step is to embrace this frame shift. And the next is to do your homework, right? That I've, I, you know, I, I made a point, like I said earlier, of referencing reports that were issued by the IOM in 17 or 20 years ago which is to say that these are not new ideas. Uh, there are people doing good work on this topic. There is a body of foundational scholarship. There are some best practices emerging. In, and to the extent that there aren't, we need to be you know, uh, engaged in conducting original research, conducting original QI work, but people who are gonna take this problem seriously are going to engage seriously with the body, the robust body of scholarship that already exists. Um, There, you know, we have some recommendations in our paper. For example, for accrediting bodies to establish anti-racism training as a common program requirement, and we're talking about, and we're talking now about the what we call the quote-unquote formal curriculum, meaning how are how are training environments and and their curricula formally organized, um, and how can they be how can they be modified or improved to incorporate some of these concepts? Well, you know, you heard me earlier refer uh, refer to data uh, regarding the role of race and racism. In healthcare and in healthcare disparities. Uh, and I there that robust body of scholarship should be regarded as like essential literature for medical trainees, right? I mean, there are, depending on your field, there are certain papers that you know you would not be caught dead not knowing how to reference, right? I it's been a long time since I was on internal medicine, a long time since my cardiology rotation. But I still remember that you darn well better know. Uh, how to describe uh, Rocket AF, which is, uh, if I remember properly, something about anticoagulation. But like, you know what I mean? As a cardiologist, you wouldn't be caught dead not knowing Rocket AF. Well, as a medical educator, you shouldn't be caught dead not knowing, um, you know, the, the types of uh, literature that I described earlier uh, and not having incorporated incorporated it as like essential scholarship into your training programs. Um we need to work harder on developing formal, formal didactics on these issues uh, and actual noon conferences and grand rounds and uh, morning reports. Morning reports focused on issues of race and racism in healthcare and the role of not only systems but provider factors on racial health disparities. But we need to also incorporate these issues into our typical didactic exercises, right? So we need to get past the point where we think about these issues as sort of set apart from real clinical medicine. No, 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 this is real clinical medicine, right? So when we're talking about morning report on liver failure, right? Or grand rounds on the coagulation cascade uh, and presenting patient cases, uh, we should be taking advantage of opportunities to explore how patient race, racism, structural health, uh, structural uh, racism, et cetera, impact the outcomes of those cases. And, you know, apart from what we define as the formal curriculum, there's also those of us who are in the medical education space talk a lot about the hidden curriculum, which is sort of the ways that people learn outside of the formally established curriculum that is from, you know, from the examples of leaders and mentors or just from sort of the social norms of the environment. And I think there are lots of opportunities to make moves on these issues in the hidden curriculum as well, for example, uh, we should normalize discussing the potential impacts of race or racism on specific clinical cases, right? So like how many times have we been in the team room talking about a case or at a morning report, morning report didactic or a noon conference or what have you um, and heard the, the patient's race or the, the role of their race uh, invoked in a discussion about their outcomes. For me, that's been rare. And I think there's much more opportunity to do that to normalize those types of conversations and get us all more familiar with those kinds of thought processes, right? I mean, think about uh, performance evaluation, right? Or not just uh, formal evaluations, but also sort of the informal sign out that we give about, um, you know, the medical student that's coming to your rotation next or the resident that's gonna be rotating with you next. Um, The evaluation process is subjective by definition, right? When I get that form, it says, What do you think this person's aptitude is? But my subjectivity as an evaluator is never interrogated. So um, differences in the ways that I evaluate learners or trainees can impact their future progress and can compound over time, right? So if I have a biased view of a particular learner and I pass that view on, well, now the person, the resident that I've spoken with, or the attending that I've spoken with, has a sort of a, um, a predisposition, predisposition to view this learner the way I viewed them, right? And so um, we don't have enough conversations about that phenomenon. We don't have enough processes in place to evaluate our sort of um, evaluation mechanisms and identify uh, areas at which they're vulnerable to racial bias. And I think we need to do that. And, and then I think we need to establish mechanisms for remedying issues that come up and for providing corrective feedback on this topic. Right. And there is a, I mean, feedback by itself is like an entire body of scholarship, right? There's so many uh, expert ideas and best practices. And so we already know how to give feedback. Right. And, uh, what we don't do enough of is, creating mechanisms for people to report or identify harms that they have observed or experienced, and then creating mechanisms to give people feedback. When I say people, I mean people in academic medicine, feedback on the ways that their ideas, comments, behaviors, attitudes, et cetera, might have perpetuated harms along racial lines, whether to um, learners around them, colleagues, staff, or even to patients and families.
1: LM, um, that's a really robust list of the, of actually kind of practical suggestions that can be implemented both for the formalized curriculum. And I really like how you address the hidden curriculum, which is a huge part of this, right, is that they leave the classroom setting, they're in the workplace environment, and and all the good work that has been done, uh, you know, in the classroom will be undone if we don't tackle the hidden curriculum and the workplace environment uh, with equal uh, veracity uh, as well. And so Part of that learning environment is also the, the faculty, and so I wonder, you know, what uh, specific changes that you advocate for at the faculty level.
0: Yeah, um, and and for this for this part, I leaned really on my co-authors, uh, Dr. Gabrina Dixon, who, as I mentioned earlier, is an expert on um, uh, underrepresented minority faculty retention, and uh, Dr. Tessie October, um, who is actually uh, at the NIH now, uh, and part of her charge is. Working on thinking about this issue from the perspective of our major uh, grant funding institution, right? Um, I think there are a couple specific corrective actions that we can take. The first is uh, you will always hear people talk about the importance of mentorship, right? The importance of uh, specifically and and in a targeted way identifying uh, people who could benefit from mentorship advisement, etc. In their career development process, um, but I, we also introduced this idea of sponsorship, right? So. Mentorship says that I, LM, I am a first year uh, critical care fellow, which I will be next year, and I can't figure out what to do with my scholarly requirement. So I consult Dr. Pradhan to say, um, you've been in this game a lot longer than I have. Can you please help me figure out how to order my steps? Right. So that's me as a sort of a subordinate coming to you as my mentor and you providing to me that mentorship uh, uh, experience. Sponsorship is a different as uh, a different sort of concept. That's not a conversation between you as my mentor and me as your trainee. It's a conversation between you and the broader institution in which we work, right? So it's one thing to say, uh, Ellen, I'll, I'll mentor you, come through my office and I'll give you guidance on your scholarly project. It's another thing to say, hey, I'm now in a meeting room where people are talking about who do we think should be up for XYZ? Who do we think you know, might make sense to Assign this role or responsibility to who do we think is ready to move to you know associate program director or what have you? And you, as my sponsor, are willing to put forward my name in a room where you recognize that my name might not naturally come up, right? And so both mentorship and spot- sponsorship are going to be critical going forward. Um, but also, I mean, we need to review the promotion and tenure criteria. Right now, there's a lot of there's a lot of energy in the um, medical school application process and the residency application process to sort of review our criteria and our processes to see are there ways in which the processes that we currently undergo um, contribute to uh, the disparities that we see in terms of matriculation to medical school and residency. Are we sort of misidentifying or under identifying uh, talented folks of color, uh, talented black people and missing out on the opportunity to, opportunity to, to train those folks the answer to that question is yes. And there are lots of people engaged in trying to remedy that. Um, but I imagine that the same is true. And we know that the same is true at the uh, tenure, at the hiring and the tenure uh, 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 promotion process. Um, that process uh, insufficiently rewards equity focused work. right? And so uh, what we need to do is as, an, as institutions look at, okay, what kinds of work do we prioritize? What kinds of work do we value? And are our, our African-American faculty doing work that is disproportionately undervalued by our by our tenure promotion process, though it is not undervalued by the institution, right? And that's a critical point, because what they'll say is, hey, thanks for leading this uh, committee on diversity. Hey, thanks for leading this community health effort. Hey, thanks for uh, you know, doing this uh, mentorship, et cetera, et cetera. Thanks for leading our, our minority faculty development program. Uh, we really appreciate that you did that. We really appreciate that you took the time away from doing publications and other things to put your time towards that, but we will not be rewarding that in the tenure and promotion process, right? And so um, there's also uh, coming from, I've been talking now a lot about like what institutions do for their own faculty, but also you know thinking about grant funding organizations, uh, there's an interesting body of research showing that black researchers were found to be significantly less likely to get funding from the NIH and that um, at least 20% of that disparity was uh, thought to be attributed to the choice of research topic, right? So we know that there are certain kinds of work, certain top research topics, and kinds of academic work that uh, underrepresented minority faculty are more likely to go into out of a sense of personal mission, out of a sense of commitment to issues related to health equity and underserved communities. And those um, topics are seen as less quote unquote sexy by. Not just by the institutions in which they're employed, but but also by external external grant funding institutions right and we all know the cachet that comes with getting your first K award or your first you know your first R award. Uh, and so if the if the organization that is bestowing sort of those credentials on people uh, is bestowing them disproportionately, then we know the multiplicative impacts that that has on your overall career progress so. Um, you know, we need to look at the, the, the criteria that we are using to, um, to promote people, to, to hire people, to promote people, to, uh, to grant awards for their research, and then also to think about uh, adding minority faculty to those processes, right? Who can, again, the idea here is we're benefiting from different experiences than ours, and we want, di- we want different and new experiences and perspectives on the committees that help make decisions about about uh, who to award jobs, grants, et cetera.
1: Fantastic. Um, I'll say say one last thing too, sorry to cut you off here.
0: No, please. Um, uh, uh, Minority faculty will talk a lot about what's called the minority tax or the black tax. And what that means is basically that uh, there will be an an expectation or, or an assumption that you, because you are the sort of the diversity in the room are going to take on some of these uh, equity focused or diversity related initiatives at, at the institution. Um, and you might even be named to a council of you know equity and diversity or whatever your hospital might call it. But I think um, what you will hear people say is, look, show me the money. And and they don't mean pay me more to do that. Uh, what they mean is uh, show me the institutional resources that you are putting behind this panel, task force, consortium, what have you. Show me the protected time that I'm supposed to have to work on this. Show me the institutional authority that this body will have, uh, so that I know that whatever work we put into recommendations and such will actually have a chance of going forward. Um, And so until the uh, sort of the nominal investment is met with a similar time investment, a similar resource investment, a similar investment of institutional power, uh, it just is taxing, frankly, to continue to participate in these activities uh, knowing that they're not likely to create significant change at the institutions.
1: No, that, that's a that's a great point. Obviously, you know we don't want to be doing uh, something in the guise of tokenism. You know, it really needs to be something that's meaningful for both the uh, academic black physician, but uh, or minority physician, but as well as for the institution uh, as well. And you highlighted in just in general your answer just to a lot of things that can be done. You know institutionally and then you know towards focusing in terms of the external bodies um as well to try and you know improve that leakiness of the pipeline you know or, or where i see these interventions uh, benefiting overall um yeah very thoughtful and engaging conversation uh Elm, any any other last things that you want to share with uh, our listeners any advice for well-intentioned physicians on overcoming barriers and implementing anti-racism changes into their, their curriculums that you want to add?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would end by by saying, um, just reiterating some of the highlights that uh, that we hit in our conversation. The first being but we've got to embrace this conceptual frame shift, right? We've got to get away from a fixation on individuals and their intentions and move toward an analysis of our systems and their their outcomes, right? And, uh, you know, here's where I say consider the CLABSI, meaning if we are, thinking about how to move the needle on this issue, we need to think about approaching it with the same sort of, you know, energy, intensity, investment that we would approach uh, and sudden and unpredicted rise in our CLABSI rate at our hospitals. Um, and beyond embracing the frame shift, you know, do your homework. Um, and I say that uh, I say that, you know, lovingly, to say that there's there's a lot of good work out there already being done that has been done for decades. Um, Become a subject matter expert, right? Develop your expertise in the literature in the same way that you would if you were, you know, trying to uh, advance a new uh, sort of uh, clinical frontier. Uh, you would first want to make sure that you understood the work that's been done to this point. And so that's my charge for any institutional leader, any um, uh, training program leader, et cetera, is to say here, the work is out there. Um, you've got to do it. And and if and to the extent that it's not, well, that's the opportunity for original research, right? And so. Perhaps that's a charge to uh, funding bodies as well to say we've got to create a demand for original research on this topic. And when I say create a demand, what I mean is pay people to do it, uh, create uh, grant funding opportunities for faculty to pursue this work, and we will see uh, you know more and more of this work being done. So I want to you know I want to thank um, everyone involved in putting this together. I want to thank you, Dr. Pradhan, for um, Creating this space and for a really great conversation. Uh, I have got to thank my mentors and sponsors, uh, Dr. Tessie October and Dr. Cabrina Dixon, who were my co authors on this paper. Um, and uh, we are looking forward to a new frontier in academic medicine um, in pushing and embracing this idea of anti racism and in plugging this, uh, what we call the
1: leaky pipeline. I think that's a fantastic place to to end our conversation. Uh, For our listeners, last thing I want to plug is that in the article, there's a fantastic table that lists practical, tangible approaches of implementing anti-racism into academic medicine. So if you're still listening, clearly you care about this topic. And I would strongly suggest you take a look at the table in the article if you're interested in incorporating and applying these approaches whether it be to your residency or fellowship or institutionally as well. Uh, Elam, thank you so much for both your article as well as uh, taking time to speak with us today. Thank you. Well, that does it for us and this latest scholarly podcast. And for those podcast listeners, Dr. Avikame's article on anti-racism in academic medicine, Fixing the Leaky Pipeline of Black Physicians, is available on the ATS Scholar website at atsjournals.org. Otherwise, stay tuned for more scholarly podcasts coming soon. And don't forget to subscribe to Scholarly on iTunes, Google Play, or whichever podcast player you prefer. Bye for now.